You can turn in your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue in our study through 1 Corinthians. And I should mention, because I see how crowded it is today, keep praying. We've been meeting with an architect and he has some plans to expand our parking and to add classrooms and to, to ultimately expand the sanctuary a bit, so... I keep thinking people are going to wise up and quit coming, but I'm sure that's happening, but more people take their place, so um, we're working on it. And I know it would help if I could end the earlier study on time, but, you know, I try. It just doesn't work. Um, 1 Corinthians, last week as we were looking in chapter 4, we saw where Paul was explaining that the real power of the Christian life is in living it not in talking about it, as he explained how cheap talk is, how easy talk is, and how really as someone is practicing what they preach, there's power there. There's power when we start to live our lives as an alternative to what the world has to offer, and that's true. But the truth is we all sin, we all will probably every day of our lives as long as we're here on the earth, and so we have a big problem, and the problem is Where we are called to be different, if we aren't careful, the church, the Christians, can become just like everything that the world has to offer. We just become a reflection of what our world is rather than an alternative to what our world is because of sin. It's there. We can't deny it. We can try to. But sin is the problem that stands in the way of us having power because that's what stands in the way of us being able to live in a different lifestyle, to live with a higher standard than the people who don't know Jesus. So what do you do about it? It's all around you. And in Corinth, they had sin had just really infected and, and affected the church. And you know, it, it was to be expected. The, city, the area of Corinth was a really bad place. It was sin city of those days. If they wanted to call someone a real dirtbag, a real sleaze, they would call them a Corinthian. That was a, a pejorative term for you are the scum of the earth. And so here they were plopped in the middle and, well, they started to look a lot like the society around them. And Here in chapter 5, Paul addresses this and talks to them and gives us insight into how we are to deal with sin that's within the body. He begins chapter 5, verse 1, and says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. He said, there's things going on in your church that I hear about it. The word spreads everywhere. In fact, you've got this situation that's so bad that even the heathens, even the people out there in the world wouldn't do it. You got a guy who is in an ongoing physical relationship with his dad's wife, probably his stepmother. If it was his natural mother, it probably would have said that. Now, for the Jews, they knew that that was incestuous, that that was wrong, it was a bad idea. But even among 
the Gentiles. He said, even they don't do that. Even they know that's over the top. And we know in those days in the, in the Roman Empire, even though certainly there were a whole lot of things that we would be, you know, think are horrible, even they had standards against this kind of thing. There's a, I read a reference to Cicero talking about this exact kind of a thing and saying, that's something that's over the top. Now, you could look at it and say, well, I could justify it. I could rationalize it. But, you know, there are certain things that just intuitively you know it's not right. There was a famous film director, actor, and comedian. I won't name him, but he was living with a woman for many, many years as, as man and wife. And, but at some point, she had adopted a girl and raised her, and he was involved in raising this girl. And at some point, he ended up leaving her for this girl, who was his kind of adoptive sort of daughter. And you can rationalize it. And people who weren't shocked that he was living with this other woman, even even in Hollywood, even by Hollywood standards or New York standards where he lived, they looked at it and go, I don't know. I mean, I know that it's not his biological daughter and technically he wasn't married to her. And not, but this is just creepy. There's just something really. And, and it was one of those things where even this guy, it, it affected his career greatly. And when comedians want to talk about something disgusting, they could make allusions to this as going, I don't know, I can't pin it down, but that's just too far. There's something really weird about that. Well, same kind of situation here in Corinth. He's going, you know what, this is so creepy that even the people who don't care about God go, that's weird. And, and you guys are famous for having this going on in your church, bad news. And he goes on to say, and your response of it, verse 2, you are puffed up. He uses this term a lot during, in this whole letter to talk about their pride. And you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. He said, it's one thing that this guy is having an ongoing affair with his stepmother, or perhaps even his mother. But you're Christians, you're the ones who are supposed to have a different standard, a higher level of life. And he goes, instead of dealing with it, instead of saying, okay, look, this is too far, you're all prideful about how you've accepted it. You're with open arms saying, hey, look at us. Now, this can become kind of confusing because the truth is everyone wants to be accepted. And it's what drew most of us to Jesus Christ, is that there we were living in sin, doing things contrary to what he says, and we expected that when we were confronted by God that he would, you know, beat us up, that he would devastate us, but instead, what did he do? He reached out to us, and he accepted us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what characterized the life of Jesus. It said sinners were drawn to him because he was so accepting of them as people. You see him with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. She was somebody who even the women in Samaria didn't like her. 
because she, had, she was a threat to any of them because she was bouncing from guy to guy, married numerous times, living with a guy now she wasn't married to. And so she was pretty alienated from even their pagan society. But Jesus reached out to her and he accepted her. And he talked to her and he let her know, hey, I know exactly what you're doing, but that's not going to keep me from being nice to you, kind to you, reaching out to you. And it totally touched her heart, as it did, if you're honest with yourself, with you when you realize God accepts me even though I'm really messed up. So that is central to the gospel, that we accept those who don't know the Lord and who are walking in sin. We don't get grossed out and sickened by what they're doing, but we say, hey, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be just like you. And so I accept you. And that is the best thing about who we can be as Christians is that we can reach out and be accepting to those who don't know the Lord despite their sin. Now, later on in this chapter, you're going to see Paul says, there's a whole different way that you need to treat people who don't know Jesus than the way you treat people who do, and he lays that out. But what they had done there in Corinth is they were really proud of their tolerance. They were really proud of the fact that hmm, this is a safe place for you to be having an affair with your mother-in-law, and you're still fine with us. Hey, you know, that's great. We may even form a fellowship for people like you, you know, to do what you do and encourage you in that which is destroying you. And our society today is geared toward tolerance. The highest value in our society is we are tolerant of alternative lifestyles and ways of doing things, so much so that you almost can't speak out against any kind of sin. It used to be that there were certain taboos that you at least didn't talk about. You knew it was there. But there are disgusting things that people are doing nowadays, and, and the world is proud of being tolerant of it. Well, if you choose to live that way, then, you know, hey, that's okay. That's your choice. Unless it involves doing something politically incorrect, you know, like eating meat or something, then, you know, wearing fur, that's sorry. We can't tolerate that. The world certainly won't tolerate people who say that there's only one way to get to heaven. No, you know, we're really tolerant of everything except that because that's intolerant. Now, again, the world is becoming more and more glorifying of tolerance because of the desire that they have to be accepted. And so I'm not judging the world for doing that. It's a natural progression of people who don't know the Lord to go, I feel rejected, I need to be accepted, and so maybe if we all get together and just accept everything about everyone, life will work, but it doesn't work, and the world is becoming more and more messed up. The problem is what people are doing that God forbids is destroying them, it's damaging them, you know, and, and you almost can't get away from it. I, on Friday, I was studying for today and spending a lot of time in this passage and it was kind of bumming me out and I was really sick of being stuck at home with my neck in this harness and everything and and so I was just like oh man I got to get out of here and so I went and 
got in my car, and if I was a drinking man, I would have gone to a bar, but I don't drink, so sitting around in a bar not drinking does, I don't even drink carbonated drinks. I just don't like them, don't like coffee, so bars have nothing to offer me. So my alternative is, when I feel that way, I go to Fry's Electronics. <laughs> and so, you know, and I went to Fry's, and I'm walking down the aisles, and I'm like, every cool gadget here I bought previous times when I was depressed. And so <laughs> it's like... I don't even see a toy I want. And then with the stress on my neck and back and everything, I'm like, pretty soon I was really, I just didn't even feel like I could drive back home. So I got to the back of the store, and they have this really cool chair, a TV chair. And it's sitting there in front of like a big 60-inch plasma TV. And I'm like, it has like four drink holders on it. I don't know what that's about, just for one chair. But I'm like, there's nobody in the chair so I made a beeline for the chair, and I sit down in it, and it was like, oh, man, this feels so good. And then I, I'm, I'm like, I'm so glad I made it to the chair when no one was here. And then I start looking at this big plasma TV, and it was some gross video on of these scantily clad women gyrating. And I'm like, oh, boy, this is a dilemma, you know. <laughs> like, this chair feels so good. But this is so disgusting, and I can't turn my head really to get away from it. And I'm teaching on 1 Corinthians 5 Sunday, and if somebody sees, yeah, we walked into Fry's and saw our pastor watching, like, soft porn back in the... So I'm like, okay, fine, you know. I get up and drove down the street to Costco where you can sit in a comfortable chair and read a book you know, with no problem, except then they were giving free samples of fish, and I hate fish, and just sitting there, and the smell of fish was, and I'm like, forget it, I'm just going to go home. <laughs> but this world, it's, you just can't get away from the, from the scum, from the disgust, from the perversion, because we're saying, hey, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with anything. And what we're doing as a world, as a society, we're heading down the drain. We're destroying ourselves. Things are getting worse, and people are being destroyed, and we're pretending like everything is fine, all in the name of tolerance. And Paul said to them, hey, this is for real destroying this guy. And yet you're all proud that he feels comfortable in your church. And he said, instead, you should be mourning that this could take him away, that this could destroy him. This could ruin his life. And he's going, that's not right. Somebody who's doing things that would destroy their life shouldn't feel like that's okay, that that's to be tolerated. If they don't know Jesus, they should feel accepted. But always the message is, God loves you the way you are, and he accepts you the way you are. But secondly, he can fix what's wrong. He can change you. He can deliver you. You don't have to keep ruining your life the way you've been ruining it. And so Paul says, you're not mourning as you should, that the one who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed, verse 3, as absent in body but present in spirit, he goes, I, I've heard about this. I'm not there, but I'm with you. I've already judged. I don't need to hear anything more. I don't need to know the details. 
even as though I were present, though, him who has so done this deed. I know, I know what's going on with him. I don't need to hear his defense. I don't need to get all the evidence. You don't have to be a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. I know this doesn't work. This is bad. I have to get one Dylan reference in every Sunday. And then, and then he goes in verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with me in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul's saying, you guys, as a body, as a church, as a group of those who have trusted Jesus Christ, you have the opportunity to make a difference in this guy's life so that he doesn't have to destroy himself. His soul can be saved. He's in danger of losing it completely. And he said, what I'm telling you to do is, it's time to deliver him to Satan. Now you go, deliver him to Satan? What's that? And commentators have written all kinds of stuff on this. And I don't know that we know exactly what he's talking about. But after we read the rest of the chapter, you get the idea that what he's saying is, there's a time when you need to just cut somebody off. There's a time when you need to let them know this isn't right, this isn't acceptable, and we can't fellowship if, if you're going to continue to go this way. Now, to give them over to Satan isn't like you want Satan to have them. You want him to go to hell. Because his whole concern is so that this guy could be saved from the devastation that he's doing to himself. Now, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey says, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul refers to the same situation, and he says, you guys did what I told you to do. Don't get carried away. Forgive the guy. Bring him back in. Restore him. So we know that it worked. But calling it, giving him over to Satan, you know, Satan is the liar who controls this world. When Paul was saved, over in Acts chapter 26, Paul talks about Jesus talking to him when he was on that road heading up to, to Damascus to persecute Christians up there in Syria. And as that happened, Jesus talked to him and said, I'm calling you to deliver people from the dominion of Satan and bring them into the realm of what I want to do, into the kingdom of God. The world of Satan is the world that's going downhill and destroying itself. What Satan does is he lies to people and makes them think this is the best it gets. He convinces people that, look, your life is falling apart. You're everything that you do turns to junk. You're hurting yourself. It's getting worse. You're going downhill. But Satan goes, that's okay. Keep going that way. This is kind of fun in a way. He fools people into thinking that being self-destructive is really the smartest thing that you can do. And that's what the world is telling people. Go ahead and ruin your life. Now, what Paul is saying here is, and we'll see a little bit more of it later, but he's going, it's so important for you to let people suffer the consequences of their choices. Sometimes you're going to have to go, you know what? I don't think Satan's done with you yet. I don't think the world is done with you yet. See, when we come to Jesus, it's because we realize this isn't working. Life isn't happening for me. This doesn't help. 
And so when that happens, Satan's run his course. We hit the wall and we go, I need something different. And that's when the Lord is there to extend his hand to us and to say, I can fix what's wrong. I can turn your life around. But some people come to the Lord, but they really aren't convinced yet that the old life wasn't the way to live, and so they continue to live in that life. And sometimes it's time to just say, you know what? I think you need to go back and find out what that world is actually like. And we need to just cut ourselves off from them. Now, as we read on, I think there'll be more insights and this becomes clearer. But he begins to explain right away why this is important to do, not just because you can save his soul, But he says in verse 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Put a little leaven in in some dough and the whole lump, the whole dough swells up. Leaven in the Bible was a symbol for sin because just a little bit of it changes everything. And remember when they were heading out of Egypt to, to go to the promised land, God had them make unleavened bread. And that's where in conjunction with the Passover, the Feast of the unleavened, Feast of Unleavened Bread came up, and it was to speak to them of the purity of their lives. Look, just keep it simple. Don't get puffed up. Don't be prideful. Turn your back on sin. And that was what was unleavened bread was. And so he says, therefore, in verse 7, purge out the old leaven. Get rid of the old way of doing things, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he says, here's the problem. Just like a little bit of leaven will affect the whole lump, if you don't get rid of it, it's going to swell up. So also... He said, in the body of Christ, in the church, in, within God's people, if you tolerate sin, if you just accept it as being acceptable and ordinary, eventually it affects everything and everyone around. And he said, you guys are unleavened because of what Jesus did for you. It's not that you don't sin. It's that your sins have been forgiven. God has delivered you. He has given you a fresh start. He, you've seen the light. Old things are passed away. Everything has become new. But if you just start to think that, no, we're just going to be like everyone else, then you lose that power of forgiveness. If you, if you stop calling sin, sin, and you just start excusing it, it's not that we don't sin. It's when we confess our sins, we agree with him that, yes, sin isn't the way I want to live. I don't want to destroy myself anymore. I don't want to destroy others anymore. That's how we purge the leaven. That's how we get rid of the sin, by admitting it, and then our Passover lamb pays the price and removes the sin. But once we stop calling sin, sin, Instead, we start going, eh, it's okay. It's not a big deal. Then what happens is it affects everything. And for the Corinthian church, he's saying, your whole church is messed up and being affected because you haven't learned to tell the truth. The alternatives that he lays out, he goes, you can continue in your tolerance or 
You can live in sincerity and truth, as he says in verse 8. You can be honest. You can speak the truth in love, in the way that God would have you to do it. But if you guys aren't honest with each other, then everything that you've, that you've lived and died for will be at waste. All that means something to you, you'll never be able to experience that new life that God has for you. Now, as he continues, and he makes it a little more clear here, in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. That word for keep company is one word in the Greek that's three different words put together. One of the words mean with, one of them means in the middle, and the third one means mixed up. So he's going, you're all mixed up, tangled up, in the middle of, with, totally intertwined with sexually immoral people. And he said, I told you not to do that. That is contagious. It's not something you want to do. But he says, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. He goes, I, I was talking about, and he, as he goes on to say, I'm saying don't hang out with Christians who are living an immoral lifestyle. But he said, I'm not talking about non-Christians. You're, you're supposed to meet them. You should welcome them with open arms. You should intentionally befriend them. It's fellowship that we're talking about. But now he goes on and says, you know, you guys are kind of obsessed with the whole sexual thing. Same thing as the world today. But he goes, let me, let me throw a few others in there that are just the same. I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous, people that desperately want things that they don't have, or extortioners, people that con others out of what they have, or idolaters, people who worship things instead of God. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He goes, no, nah, I didn't mean don't don't have anything to do with these kind of people. But, verse 11, now I have written to you not to keep company, not to be mixed up with anyone named a brother or sister who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater. And then he adds in order reviler, somebody who talks bad about other people, or a drunkard while we're at it, or an extortioner not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So taking all of this, putting it together, what's he talking about? He says, you know, you cannot, you don't have a right to tell people who aren't Christians how they ought to live. People don't get saved because you go tell them how bad they are. They get saved when they hit the wall and realize what they're doing isn't working. And they see the love and the acceptance that God has for them. So he goes, don't go telling people who don't believe the way you do what's wrong with them. They're going to figure it out. In fact, the devil is really good at teaching people that he doesn't know how to live. And so he goes, don't judge them. But he said, you have a responsibility among yourselves to speak the truth. 
and, and to point out areas in which people who are your brothers and sisters in the Lord are living in such a way that's destructive, are living in such a way that they resemble the world, are living in such a way that they're violating everything that God says life can be and ought to be. And he says, if you don't do that, the whole thing is going to be affected. You're going to destroy the identity of what people ought to see. When people see the church, when people see Christians, they ought to go, man, these people are loving. They shouldn't see people who are reviling them. They shouldn't think, oh, Christians are the ones that are always telling me how wrong I am. If they see that, they're seeing the wrong thing. They certainly shouldn't see, well, why should I become a Christian? Is that going to help my marriage? Heck, most of the Christians are getting divorces just like, you know, the non-Christians are. How are you supposed to show us how to be married when you don't know how to do it yourselves? Or they're a bunch of con men. They're a bunch of crooks, extortioners. Why would I need to become like that? I can, I can do that without becoming a Christian and not feel guilty about it. And so the idea is, hey, the world needs to see a difference. If the world's going to see a difference, the church needs to figure out how to live that difference because, as he said in the previous chapter, the power is not in word. The power is in obedience. So what do we do about all of this? Well, obviously... Here he is saying, in this case, you need to kick this guy out. You guys need to get together and say, you know what, bro, we can't hang with you anymore. We can't pretend like this is okay. Now, there are a lot of people today who think, you know, the church needs to kick a lot more people out of the church. I mean, I have people almost every day wanting me to kick somebody out for some reason, and they'll cite 1 Corinthians 5 as the reason why. But obviously, and remember, this is the only case of it we see. There's one other time with Hymenius and Alexander where Paul said that he, he gave them over to Satan, but doesn't really go into detail as to what he did. But at this point, it was so radical that needed to happen. But again, remember, let's also notice that he's not just saying only for those sexual offenses. So if you're going to, you know, if somebody's having an affair and you want to kick them out of the church, what are you going to do about people who are covetous, people who want more? Are we going to kick them out too? Well, it's not God's heart to kick anybody out. It may get to that point, usually because you neglect to do what you're supposed to do in the first place. But Galatians chapter 6 Paul talks about there in the first verse. He said, when you see your brother who's caught up in an offense, go to them, you who are spiritual, so you're hearing from God, you're walking with him, go to them in a spirit of meekness, realizing that you could be tempted too, and restore them to fellowship. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's what's supposed to happen. Matthew 18, Jesus said, if you have a, an offense, if you're offended by somebody, then go talk to them. Try to restore everything. If that doesn't work, maybe take somebody with you, see if that'll help. If that doesn't work, bring them before the church. If that doesn't work, treat them like a non-Christian. So what does that mean ultimately at the end of Matthew 18? You know, do you blast them? Do you destroy them? No, you go, I tried what I can do. <laughs> it's not working. I guess I need to pray for this person that God will work in their life. I need to pray that maybe they don't even know the Lord and they just think they do. 
But if we would learn to do this a little at a time, the whole lump wouldn't become infected. And we need to get our eyes off of all the sin outside the church and get our eyes on our own lives, repent of our sins, and help each other. How are we going to do that? First of all, we need to have the kind of relationship with each other whereby we can talk to each other about our faults without offending. We can't do it arrogantly. We can't do it judgmentally. We can't do it with people we hardly know. We can't do it with a sledgehammer. No, it's supposed to work like this. You and I, we're Christians. We go, hey, we are bound together by the fact that we all want to follow Jesus Christ. We all want to really live this life, not just fake it. So how about we make a deal? If you see me having a blind spot, if you see me messing up, I want you to tell me. If I see you, I'll tell you too, because I can't always see myself very well. Other people can see me much better, so how about we just do that for each other? And then when it happens, I go, oh, wow, thanks for telling me. I'm sorry, I, I confess that, and we move on. If we would do that, if the church would just tell the truth, it would do so much more then all the tolerance and all the church discipline and everything else at both extremes, it's like just be honest with each other and let people be honest with you. Now, it's one thing if you, if you know somebody's having an ongoing affair. Now it's like, okay, what do I do? But, you know, you might see someone doing something that's dabbling around the edges and you might want to go, hey, just I'm just thinking it doesn't look that great for you what you're doing. Um, but how about this? You know, it's one thing to do it in that area. That's something that, oh, yeah, those are the big ones. But when was the last time you thought about covetousness as being something that has the potential to destroy someone's life? What do you do when your friends buy things that they can't afford? When they max out their credit cards? Do you let them buy you lunch with their maxed out credit card? Do you admire the stuff they bought that they shouldn't have bought? Do you encourage the choices that they are making that's going to destroy their lives? Or do you say, hey, please don't take this bad, but could you really afford that? Don't you think it might have been smarter to, to wait until you can save up money and, and buy something rather than to buy something that's going to run you into debt? Do you think it's setting a great example for your kid? And then they go, okay, shut up, shut up. Okay, okay, sorry. I got too carried away. But have you ever even thought about talking to someone about life choices they are making that are hurting them and destroying their lives? I'm just saying, are you sure? If we would do that, we could save ourselves so many troubles. Usually what we do is we wait until they crash and burn. And then we go, yep, I knew it. I could have told you. I wanted to tell you. A couple times I tried to tell you. But uh, now it's time for you to learn. No, now is not time for you to learn. It's obvious now. It did what it's supposed to do. Now, if you allow someone, you know, after you've shared with them and they're like, nope, I'm going to do this. I don't care what you say. Well, at that point, let it happen. Some, at some point, you may just have to say, you know what, I can't fix you, 
So let's not talk about it anymore. And I wonder how this would affect someone if while they were doing something that you knew was wrong, that you knew was destroying them, if you finally told them, you know what, we've talked and I'm praying for you and I'll continue to pray with you, but I keep giving you advice and you just keep doing the thing that's got you into this mess in the first place. And so you know what, could you just... Could we just not talk about this anymore? Can we not mix it up on this issue anymore? You're, if you're going to just do what you're going to do, just go ahead and do it. Don't, I'm not going to give you my blessing. You already know what I think. Back off a little bit. I wonder what that would do. Because for every one of us, when fellowship is broken, it affects us. But if we don't break it out of anger and boldness and pride, but instead out of love, we're just saying, you know, it hurts me too much. Every time we cry, I go, every time we talk, I, I go away and I cry because I see what you're doing to yourself. And this is just getting too painful for me. Do we have enough love to say, at some point, I'm going to have to draw the line? and say, you're going to have to do what you're going to do. And I don't want to be involved in it anymore because this is killing me. It's killing you too, but it's killing me to see what it's doing to you. That's truth. And that's what we're supposed to do. And if we would take those kinds of steps, what a radical effect it would have on our lives. If all of a sudden people are drawn to us when we're doing the right thing, and then people are repelled from us when we're doing the wrong things, it would reinforce doing good behavior. There are some people who do wrong things because they like the attention. Children who don't get a lot of love and affection from their parents, a lot of attention for doing good things, and then they realize, when I do bad things, even though it hurts and they... Well, nowadays, people are afraid to spank because they'll get sued or something. But, you know, they put me in the corner or they give me a timeout or whatever. I get disciplined. But, you know, it feels good to actually get that kind of attention. And that reinforces bad behavior. And I'm convinced that there are some adults that like to shock people by telling people what they're doing wrong because it does get their attention. It does get prayer, and it reinforces sometimes that bad behavior. And, I, and there is a time when in the body we have to say, enough is enough. I've told you everything I have to tell you. Now you're just going to have to go suffer the consequences of what you're choosing to do, the way you're choosing to leave. I'm not going to keep doing this. And in doing that, we extricate ourselves from the mess, but also we just go, you know, I'll be here when it runs its course, when you wear yourself out, when life is painful and miserable enough that you're ready to actually change, then I'll be here. And I'll be ready to forgive you and to restore you to fellowship. But right now, you don't fit here because you're not calling sin, sin. You're wanting me to tell you it's okay for you to ruin your life. And I'm not going to do that. 
I can't do that. And there's a time when enough people do that, it can have a radical effect in a beneficial way on someone's life where all of a sudden they're like, whoa, what happened? And that's what happened with this guy. That's all it took was for people to go, nope, not going there anymore. We don't accept what you're doing. We're not going to tolerate it. I'm telling you the truth. You're destroying yourself. Now go ahead and do it. Sometimes when, if I counsel people for, I, I usually don't counsel people more than a couple times. Um, and partly it's because after somebody counsels with me a couple times, they're pretty much done. But, but so am I. Because I, I know, I, I'll tell you what I know. I'll give it my best shot. And then if you keep coming back and you're still, you still haven't made the changes that you need to make in your life, it's like, what do you want me to say? And so sometimes I'll tell people, and, you know, this is, they don't, this may be not counseling 101, but sometimes I'll just tell people, do you just want my permission? Fine, go ahead and do what you're going to do. And then they go and, you know, tell their friends, you know, Pastor Dave told us to get a divorce. I'm like, well... Not ex- you know, they, they said you told them to get a divorce. I go, well, not exactly. But that's what they're going to do anyway. So I just finally go, fine, if that's what you're going to do, just do it. You'd be better off to go get a divorce, totally ruin your lives, and then realize you need to do things God's way than to dabble with it for the rest of your life and never really decide to live a higher standard to live differently. And so there's a point where you just have to release people and go, you know what? Do what you're going to do. Now, there are a lot of you have, who've become entrapped in dependencies with members of your family or close friends of yours who sap the life out of you because they're constantly drawing off of you as they dump their problems on you, put their monkey on your back, and as you are enabling them to continue to live that way. There are people who allow their kid to live with them their whole life, and they don't work, and they're not trying to do things on their own. And here, I I see it all the time, parents who just feel awful because their kid's addicted to drugs, and they've wrecked their life, and they've done all this, and it's like, they're still writing checks, and they're still helping them and bailing them out and all that kind of stuff. And we feel so trapped with this codependency thing, and sometimes you just have to go, you know what? You're going to suffer the consequences of what you've done. Oh, Maybe I could make it easier on you, but I don't want to do that. And sometimes if we would just release people we love to Satan, and that sounds so radical, it sounds so bad, because that's what we're doing. We know if they don't have me, they're not going to have anybody who's going to tell them to do the right thing. But Paul said, you know what? Let go. Sometimes the best thing for someone is for you to release them and go, there you go. This is what you've been dabbling with for years. Go ahead and find out what it's like. Come back and tell me how it's going. Tell me how it's working. And often, we are the ones, as as well-meaning, good-intentioned people who are protecting people from discovering how much they really need the Lord, because we make it easy on them to be half in and half out, a little bit there and a little bit not. And Paul says, you know what, if the church is anything, it should be a place where we tell the truth. And 
If the church is anything, it should be a place where we can trust God, not our own abilities to fix people's lives. And if we go, you know what, I've done what I know to do to try to fix you, and it's not working, then at some point we have to back off. And sometimes within the church, if the church is being affected, we may need to tell people, you know, I know you got problems and I care about you and everything, but you're doing damage to others, and so we can't have you around. If there's a guy in the church who's always scamming on women or who's, you know, watching the kids in an unhealthy way or whatever, you bet we're going to say, hey, I know you got problems, but not here. When you've repented, when you're getting help, when you understand that what you're doing is destroying yourself, hey, then we'll talk. There's forgiveness. But without forgiveness... I can't let you wreck my life. I can't let you wreck our church. I can't let you make us look just like the world. Now, it's very rare that you do that with an individual in the church. Nowadays, it probably doesn't have the effect it did back then because, hey, there's three churches, if you count the temple, within 100 yards. (laughs) They'll just go there. But for us personally... Is that what we do? Wait till it gets to that point? Or do we say, how can we keep it from getting there? Can we be honest with each other? Can we just tell the truth? And a lot of times when somebody's life has totally blown up, and then everybody's like, why didn't the church do something? I think, well, why didn't their friends do something a long time ago? Tolerance or truth? Can we be honest with each other? Will we allow people to look at our lives and go, you're not looking so good. You're really messing yourself up. You don't seem like you've been happy lately. You're doing some things that seem really dumb to me. Can we share that? Will we accept that? If so, the church works. It does what it's supposed to do. It's one of the reasons why I think it's important to be involved in smaller fellowships. And In a church with this many people, you're not going to get everything you need right here. You'll be taught. I'll try to give you some tools. We go through the Word of God. But at the same time, if you don't have circles of friends, if you aren't involved in some kind of a home fellowship or in another ministry, you know, we have lots of opportunities. The bulletin's chock full of them. But if we don't get involved in smaller groups, then nobody ever gets close enough to tell us when we're messing up. And we need somebody to tell us when we're messing up. That's the most basic need we have as Christians, really. And we need to break down and get ourselves in relationships of accountability where that can happen. And we need to have the courage to speak the truth. Now, I understand that every time I tell the truth, I'm taking a risk. I know that any time I get up here on a Sunday... What I have to say is probably going to offend someone. And contrary to popular belief, I don't offend people on purpose. But at the same time, God help me if I go, you know, there's a, as we're going to see in a few weeks, there's a passage of Scripture that specifically addresses homosexuality. But I know there are people that are struggling with that or maybe who have accepted that as a lifestyle and I don't want to alienate them, so maybe I'll just skip it over. God help me if I do that. 
God help me if I go, yeah, sexual immorality, sexual immorality, and I won't talk about covetousness or idolatry. We need to be equal opportunity offenders. What I need most from the scriptures is for it to tell me what I'm doing wrong so that God can fix what's messing me up. We need that. And that comes when we speak the truth. Speaking the truth in love, yes. Speaking the truth in humility, absolutely. But speaking the truth is what we all need. And we need to release each other and to say, I know that God is able to do what I can't do. My obligation is to be honest with you. And that's what Paul laid out is, here's how the church is supposed to work. To do otherwise is to say, let's see how bad it's going to get. Let's allow the church to become something that's even disgusting to the world. I don't want that. Let's pray.